Thank you for joining me, Paul. Sophia Howard has served House Atreides three generations. He swears you are the finest student he's ever taught. Yui, Gurney, and Duncan say the same. Makes me feel very proud. I want you to be proud of me. the sea but a person needs new experiences they draw something deep inside allowing him to grow without change something sleeps inside us and seldom awakens A sleeper must awaken. Okay, everybody, welcome back to Wrapped in Podcast. We are here to discuss part 16 of Twin Peaks The Return, entitled No Knock, No Doorbell. I'm J.R. Parker, and I've been thinking about uncles a lot lately. Uh, we're joined this week by Kyle King. How are you doing, Kyle? One hundred percent. And we are also joined by Ken Walzak, who has firmly reestablished himself uh, on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. How are you doing, Ken? Yeah, I, I think I'm doing well. I'm I'm the sheriff station. I'm the sheriff station. I'm I'm the sheriff station. And Jeff Fallis, how are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing pretty good. I, I've had a lot of work to do lately, uh, and I've been so, so sleepy. But I finally made my way to the roadhouse, and I had a martini, and I awakened, and I, I feel much better. Well, that's good. That's good. Did you get a chance to look in the mirror to confirm you're doing better? I haven't done that yet. Okay. I'm afraid uh, to do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, at the very beginning of this episode, I feel like I'm again vindicated uh, with a very meaningful Rancho Rosa logo. Uh, this is something that I had identified several weeks ago and cataloged uh, in a sort of ongoing agonistic debate with you know people who listen to our con our podcast. I said uh, that, that people said that it, oh well it changes every week and it doesn't matter. It's just like the traffic light in the original series. Uh, but no, it really does seem keyed here for the very first time. We get a blue sky background. Um, We've never seen that. The, this, the background in every single previous episode was either black or white or gray or beige uh, or reversed, but never blue, never a blue sky. This is the first time we have a blue sky. Uh, I think this is really important because of the importance of blue. I don't want to step on Kyle's territory, but I think blue has a lot of significance. Uh, I think, you know, the sky is opening up. The robins are coming. And uh, in the inside of the circle, we see a, a green flash. Uh, the beginning of the episode, we've got another Lost Highway road shot of Coop and Richard Horn. Uh, there's just a lot of furtive looks from Richard over at Mr. C, uh, as if Richard might have any chance of getting an upper hand. 
Uh, I, I definitely want to credit Ken for noting uh, that the pairing of Richard and Mr. C is like the pairing of banal, stupid 2017 evil versus real ancient otherworldly shit or Richard Spencer tagging along with Rasputin. Uh, that's fantastic, Ken. <laughs> Thank you. I had a little something to say kind of, yeah, just uh, this sequence, you know, again, and all these kind of, like he called it the lost highway, the kind of driving at night road shots. They made me think at this point, like how much a creature of the night to quote Bram Stoker, uh, Doppel Cooper seems like to me and how much I associate him with these scenes, these shots. Um, we have seen Doppel Cooper in broad daylight a few times uh, during the, you know, Garmin Bozia vomiting car cash sequence in episode three. And after his uh, bad night out with Ray and the woodsman, uh, to meet Hutch and Chantal, but more and more his scenes uh, have taken place in pitch black, and uh, uh, as as I called it, inkiest Lynchian Stygian night. Uh, so yeah, I just was thinking how much I've associated Doppel Cooper with these nighttime scenes, and I assume he's going to show up in episode seventeen and eighteen, and uh, I wonder if we'll see him in broad daylight then. And if they if we do, it will be a shock. To me, the interesting thing about this shot was uh, last week, uh, although I didn't think last week's episode was that negative, some people did. And of course, last week's episode began with this scene of overwhelming positive goodness with Big Ed and Norma, whereas this episode, which I think most of us think is an episode filled largely with good vibes, begins with this really dark, ominous driving at night scene, and it's just neat how Lynch is playing with our expectations with the way he begins these episodes and then pulls a switch on us with the rest of the hour. Yeah, and I just wondered how far this is supposed to be. I I know we're not talking about the terrible season of Game of Thrones, but there's been a lot of talk about how badly Game of Thrones handled distance and time this season. And we have this program now where Cooper seems to be at various points throughout the American West, and it's very unclear how long it takes to traverse them. So I had this vision of them going from somewhere in like Western Montana, where this convenience store was, all the way to uh, Twin Peaks, and having to just drive for hours in silence because it's not like Bad Cooper is going to play the radio. While he uh, while he drives with his son Richard Horn, there it's it's odd to imagine how long they would have had to have been in this car together. Maybe this is why he drives at night. He just has to cover long distances, uh, you know, in, in in short periods of time without much traffic. So maybe maybe that's why he does all the driving at night. It has nothing to do with the inky blackness of his soul. Yeah, and there are parts of the West where you can go seventy five, and it's not like he cares about speed limits. So, but he does he does have to follow the power lines. Yeah. True. It just, I was just thinking about him being able to break the speed limit. Uh, uh, certainly, Richard Horn is not going to encourage him to uh, to use good driver safety measures. Oh yeah. No, that's right. Uh, I I thought geographically this scene, I didn't think it was in Washington until a certain someone came out of the woods uh, because because of the the fact that the landscape there were no trees. It was almost a kind of grassy, rocky area that I wouldn't normally associate with Washington, I guess. But uh, we, we do know that, that he was in Washington. And, he, you know, he proceeds to get out of the car, Mr. C does, with Richard. Tells Richard that he's got this device. That he's got uh, – he, he, he asks him, do you know about the place? Or do you understand a place? He's looking for a place. 
Which, like, what the hell does that mean? They, the the place. Do you understand the place? Uh, it's one of those weird, you know, uses uses of the definite article that doesn't make any sense unless there's been a prior discussion of what the place is that they're talking about. So maybe they had this conversation in the car. We don't know. Uh, but Mr. C asks Richard uh, which what he should do because he's got two coordinates that match this rock over there. And uh, or he, I guess he says he's got two coordinates that match and one that do- doesn't. What should he do? And Richard like says that he should use the two coordinates that match, uh, which is, you know, that doesn't really seem like the right answer. Be like, well, what do you know about these coordinates? Where did they come from? What do you know about the sources? Are there people you can trust? He didn't ask any of those questions. Anyway, the, these two, the two sets of coordinates that he has, which we assume must be the coordinates from Ray and the coordinates from what would appear to be Philip Jeffries in his tea kettle. Uh, are the ones that match. And he's got this device that will beep as he gets closer to wherever it is he's going and will emit a solid tone once he gets there. He tells Richard, who's 25 years his senior, that he should take them and uh, take this device and go up the hill to the top, to the rock, uh, and to let him know when he gets to the right point, which he starts to gum up the the hill and then we see our friend <coughs> Jerry Horn come out come running out of the woods who first says oh people and then he's so fucked up that he doesn't know how to use binoculars uh repeatedly he repeatedly puts on the binoculars and sees something further away than it's supposed to be we can't tell if he recognizes his grand nephew Richard uh but he is is the witness to Richard who gets to the rock, which, you know, his device is beeping as he starts to get uh, climb on top of the rock. And then he sort of walks towards the middle. It seemed like there may have been some sort of cutting in the middle of the rock. Did you guys see that? Like right above where he was standing, like there may have been something engraved inside the rock. We couldn't, I couldn't really tell. Uh, but anyway, once, once the, once the tone becomes solid, uh, Richard is uh, fried with electricity and it's not a quick thing either. It takes a while for him to burst into electrical flame and then finally, you know, crisp sort of from the bottom up uh, almost like a, like a sparkler or a firecracker. Uh, And then when he's done, he's gone. And when it happens, Mr. C has a great line of, Oh, (laughs) Uh, and then he, he, he concludes with the same words of Jor-El at the beginning of uh, Man of Steel, goodbye, my son. So, yeah. that's And I find, I find that analogy deeply, deeply disturbing I, I, on many I knew many that it would upset yeah, you. I expected that's you reason. would. Yeah. That's, that's, I knew that it would upset you. Uh, so, so, yeah, uh, great scene. And I know you guys have more to say about it. Yeah, think of yeah, that farewell confirm- as a. I'm sorry, Kyle. Um, think of that farewell as a bookend to the wonderful farewell we got for Margaret Lanterman. You know, the the good night, Margaret, goodbye, Margaret, versus this monotone goodbye, my son. Like, wow, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it does confirm that Doppel Cooper is the worst Twin Peaks father since Leland Palmer. 
Um, but it, it really gives, uh, of course, we, we had always suspected, although none of us really wanted to acknowledge that Doppelcooper probably was Richard Horn's father. Uh, this does confirm it. And it gives this scene a, a really distinct Old Testament resonance. I mean, it, it never really made any sense that we'd show up in this place we've never seen before. JR, you're right. It wasn't identifiably Twin Peaks until Jerry Horn showed up. And, and there's, there's no reason why the coordinates, the coordinates would just lead you to this random damn rock in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I mean, Ray had told him not to trust the numbers that he gave him, but this knowing sacrifice of, of Richard makes this very much a moment of Abraham and Isaac without God being there. And and really, Jr. when you were describing the way he crisped from the bottom up, it made me think that uh, uh, that Richard was actually being turned into microwave Garmin Boja before our eyes. Oh, yeah. I thought a lot about the the coordinates here, probably too much, and I think I still think you're probably right, Kyle. That uh, okay, so Jeffries and Ray, their coordinates match; those are wrong. The ones that don't match are Diane's. But I also thought of all these other uh, scenarios, and I think spent way too long thinking about this today, and then finally decided that it might be like that thing in uh, The Big Sleep, where uh, the screenwriters for the film adaptation of that novel including William Faulkner, they couldn't figure out who killed someone at the end of the novel. And they called up Raymond Chandler and he didn't know either and said, it doesn't matter anyway. So I, I feel like the <laughs> the coordinates might be a MacGuffin style uh, thing like that, that might not, might not be addressed. There might not be a way to, to sort it out. But I do think that your scenario that the two that don't match are being uh, Jeffries and Ray's, uh, or the two that match that led us to this place, uh, and then the one that doesn't match being Diane's, which I assume leads us to. We'll talk about that later. That's great, Jeff. That ties all the way back to my college theory about Lost Highway, that it was intentionally set up in the big sleep kind of way, so that there would always be one piece you couldn't fit in, no matter how many times you watched it and analyzed it and tried to um, reconstruct the narrative. See, I don't think that I don't think that applies to the coordinates here. I, I mean, we we know that Ray and Philip Jeffries were acting in concert against Mister C, and this is the conclusion of their attempt to take him out, uh, which didn't work. Just as many of Mister C's attempts to take out Dougie and uh, you know associated folks ultimately didn't pan out either. That's how I took it. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't think it was that mysterious. But that's why the right question for Richard to ask is, what do you know about the people that sent you these coordinates? Right. Not just exactly. choose the two that match. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and since given that Diane texts a set of coordinates later on to Doppelcooper and says, boy, I hope this works. I think we're going to find out in 17 and 18 from what those coordinates do and where they take him. I think that's going to give us a pretty clear indication of, of the source of the three sets of coordinates and which two match. Yeah. I also love in this scene, you know, how the, the sense we get that uh, Lynch and Frost are playing a long game indeed in this season, you know, and like, you know, the, the Jerry Horn scenes, which I haven't thought about in a while, but I loved the, I think originally my prediction was that Jerry Horn was going to burst onto the scene at Jack Rabbit's palace a few episodes ago. That didn't happen, obviously. And I think I'd probably forgotten about poor Jerry Horn in the woods since then. Uh, but I loved the absurd payoff uh, at this point. Uh, yeah. That just, he showed up and I think our, our patience slash exasperation uh, will be rewarded uh, in spades uh, in this episode. So yeah, that was, it was, it was great. I don't know if 
Jerry Horn will make his way back to the Great Northern to tell uh, Ben or Audrey what happened to their mutual relative. Uh, this that he might be stuck in the woods forever, uh, or at least until the Jerry Horn spinoff graphic novel that Ken predicted that will come out in like <laughs> 2028. Uh, but uh, to yeah. get my money, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and finally, uh, Bad Coop texts an emoji happy face and then A L L all capital letters to Diane. But we note that the message is not delivered. The time on his phone is 2.05 a.m., uh, although he's got three three or out of five bars or units of coverage wherever he is. I'm assuming that there could be some kind of electrical field interference from whatever's in that rock. I was going to say, sometimes you get Fair point. bad Fair reception point. around interdimensional portals. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> It's true. There's like an FCC warning on the side of the rock that it can interfere with your <laughs> your radio devices. Um, so we we jump to Las Vegas to Lancelot Court in front of Dougie's house, where Chantal and Hutch are staking out the Dougie Jones residence. Um, Jeff, you appreciated their painter's disguises. I I, I do too. I mean, you you, you got to love a flunky in a jumpsuit, right? And and that's that's what you get here. Uh, but Kyle, you've noted that the South Dakota license plates don't really uh, kind of put the lie to the effectiveness of that disguise as a, as painters that they yeah, be having. Although they I think so. they do have I brushes think. and cans of paint in the back of of their van that we see later on when uh, Hutch is you know completely obliterated by the Polish accountant. But I've gotten ahead of myself. So it, it's it's pretty. The, there's this great line that I think all of us will appreciate. We keep referencing Robbins. For those of you guys who have totally lost the thread, which would make a lot of sense because you're not obsessive folks like we are. When we talk about the Robbins, we're talking about the movie Blue Velvet, uh, where there's a scene where Lord Dern's character talks about all the evil in the world uh, being pushed out. Uh, when the robins appear, um, just thousands and thousands of robins appear out of the sky and everything's happy and beautiful. <clears throat> Ken has been wondering since we started, you know, pr- on a pretty grim dark note in, in the series when the robins were going to come. And, you know, with the blue sky, uh, with things that have been happening in the past couple of episodes, with things that happened in this episode for sure, we think that the robins are coming back. Now, I'm mentioning that because Chantal asks, Hutch, if she heard that bird that was singing this morning, uh, or I can't remember who asked whom, but uh, anyway, the bird singing, I think we're supposed to think is a robin. Um, yeah, yeah. Actual empirical evidence of returning robins and the last two episodes have really been focused on good guys having having these awakening moments. And so here we have evidence of birds singing and waking people up. I mean, it couldn't be more clear-cut. And and now, after your helpful explanation, JR, everyone understands the silverware and can love the dog. Yeah. Should we explain those runners, too, since we've explained? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking the other day that we should <laughs> right. be explaining yeah. these runners. It's like 18 hours we since I last should. mentioned, maybe more than 18 hours of this podcast since I explained understanding the silverware, right? Maybe we should create a Google Doc that uh, it, it, a yes. glossary of wrapped in podcast yeah. references. A, yeah, a lexicon. The, 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 put a glossary yeah. up. Yeah. yeah, that's a good idea. Um, so uh, it does it seems to me looking at uh, Tim Roth and it's uh, Jennifer Jason Lee here, right? 
uh, Chantal and Hutch, that their their casting seems just immediately like a shout out or a throwback to a certain type of 90s independent film when Tarantino's stamp was sort of on everything. And then the way that this scene pans out the way that their fate is sealed makes it really seem that way like if what you want is gruesome but satisfying and actually very funny deaths of criminals who are quick-witted and talk to each other about polyamory and constellations and fast food what you do is you get veterans of movies that use that stuff all the time right you go and get tim roth and jennifer jason lee it's kind of cool actually can i just want to say uh, and contradic- in contradistinction to every person I've met who is polyamorous, Chantel and Hutch actually don't discuss it. <laughs> um, so that's Jared, just some, a lot that's, of that's, that's something that's, a lot right, of that, that's something that that's something that we have been discussing uh, about them. But they don't they haven't talked about it. They're just you know cool with it. Um, they anyway, processing off screen. That's right. Uh, so and there's the other been st- no indication it's with anyone other than Doppel Cooper. Yeah, that's right. That's true. It could just be like a triangle. I, who knows? Um, th- there is an open quality to their marriage, and they seem to love each other pretty well. Um, anyway, so they're here in time to see that other folks are about to stake out uh, the Dougie Jones reference. The, the Las Vegas FBI comes to the door, uh, and you know it, the, the Jay Ferguson, the boss, is, continues to. Uh, scream at his deputy. Uh, they come to the door. Nobody's home. And uh, Wilson, the deputy, has to uh, you know stake out the house. Then we jump to the hospital where Dougie's in a coma. Uh, he's intubated, uh, but his vital songs signs are are good and strong, which I thought was a little weird. You're, you don't get intubated if you're good and strong, usually. Janie and Sonny are there. Bushnell comes in. Bushnell says, I just heard what you've been telling me. He's in a coma. Uh, and Jenny, he <laughs> says, when people go into a coma, they can stay there for years. Uh, it, it's, it's great. And I think, Ken, you've got some stuff you want to talk about. Uh, but continuing these lines, Sonny Jen says, mom, does a coma have something to do with electricity? And Janie says, no. Bushnell's like, well, in this, this case it did. And that's certainly true. And then we get the Mitchum brothers who show up. They're great. They've got a huge uh, flower display and they've got, you know, their candy, Mandy and Sandy with finger sandwiches. They, they ask for Janie E's key because they're going to go to their house and stock their house with food. Um, you know, Belushi is like, it was uh, like what? Electricity. <laughs> it's just it's great. It's, 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 it's always fun to see them. But of course I thought when I, when they get the keys, it's like, well, shit, the the Mitchum brothers are going to have a shootout with uh, Hutch and Chantel. Right? You all thought that, too, when, when that happened. Sure. Sure. I don't know. I was thinking Polish accountant myself, but it was just me. Yeah, could just, you just assumed a Polish accountant was going to show up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you That's saw that these, one coming. these yeah. things always go, yeah. <laughs> so, Ken, you wanted to talk about Shot Corridor? Yeah, Shot Corridor is one of my all-time favorite films. Uh, It's by Sam Fuller, who is a brilliant director, and it stars, among others, my all-time favorite Constance Towers, who I've mentioned on this podcast, and she is a uh, stripper and the long-suffering girlfriend of a journalist who is uh, very irresponsible and decides that he's going to win the Pulitzer Prize by going undercover in an insane asylum. 
which quest, of course, ends up making him crazy. So by being around crazy people long enough, he goes, goes crazy. And this is very questionable movie science, certainly extremely questionable movie psychology. There is a lot of electroshock treatment in it, and it certainly fits well with Lynch's concerns about electricity and about the lines between sanity and insanity and the lines between the worlds. It's got a lot of very poignant 60s social commentary in it. There's an African-American person in the asylum who thinks he's in the KKK, um, which is topical, I suppose, now. Uh, But in any event, uh, so the main plot is about uh, this journalist, Johnny Barrett, going into this institution. But to get there, of course, we have to explain what he's up to and what what he's doing. And it's much the same way that I've just described it now, except it's expository dialogue being given by Constance Towers. And she just has this incredible, flat, Jay Cutler, don't care sort of a delivery when she describes er everything dumb, movie science-y. And uh, it's really, really similar to what Naomi Watts is doing as Janie E. Here. So when she when she gave it that line about when people are in a coma, when people go into a coma, they can stay there for years. I thought of her immediately. And uh, it's great because I thought of her when Dern was doing her thing later. And of course, these two characters are, are meant to be sisters. So it's, it's like they're sisters who both studied acting at the Constance Towers School. And it makes me very happy. And of course, Jr. I I couldn't help but notice, particularly in this scene, how it really brings home the color scheme. You were talking earlier about the blue showing up in the in the Rancho Rosa logo. You know, Coop is in bed. You see these little thin red and yellow wires, but the the red and yellow is very marginalized in this scene. You know, he's breathing through a blue tube, has his head on a blue pillow, he's lying on a blue sheets, he's lying under blue sheets in a green blanket. Curtains are blue and green. The monitors have got blue lines and green numbers. Sonny Jim's wearing a green shirt that you can see out from under his yellow jacket. Bushnell's wearing a blue shirt and tie. And when he comes in, there's a red medical waste receptacle, and there's a smaller yellow bin on the counter beside it, but they're off to the side. They're as far away from Cooper as they can be and still be in the room. Same thing when the Mitchums enter. They've got a gift basket that's got bright red and yellow. It, too, is placed off to the side on the counter. And so you're literally seeing the red and yellow being marginalized in this scene and the green and particularly the blue emerging to the forefront. So from a color standpoint, we're getting real good signs that this is going to end happily for Cooper and for Twin Peaks fans. Yeah, and I was just going to say there is a lot of talk of comas and electricity uh, in this sequence. And it definitely seems like it's preparing us for the episode's penultimate shot of Audrey waking up in some clear, you know, white space, perhaps from a coma or some sort of fugue state. Uh, and when she wakes up, it's accompanied by the distinct sound that we've uh, become so familiar with this season of uh, lodge-associated electrical crackling. Um, I love the idea, I guess, of electricity being the agent that ushered Cooper into the world again in episode three. And also kind of, which apparently robbed him of his conscious memories of his past life, the sort of River of Lethe style. And then also being the agent in the, you know, between the last episode and this one, by which he is literally shocked back into consciousness. Uh, so Sonny Jim, with his naive question uh, about comas and electricity, is actually, I think, on uh, the right path. And then, uh, you know, our uh, uh, Bradley Mitchum, who listen to his dreams who seems to be awakening in some level to uh, the intuitive life, uh, the realms of the spirits. Um, 
he seems to know recognize that connection um, as well. So I, I I I liked all this talk of of comas and electricity uh, in this this scene. How great is that, Bradley Mitchum? Just the oh yeah, electricity, yeah. All things considered, it, he looks good. <laughs> yeah, and, and I particularly like the "all things considered" line because it reminded me of of Cooper talking to himself after he was shot at the beginning of the season two premiere when he said, "All things considered, being shot is not as bad as I always thought it might be." And, and you get very much that same, you know. Well, his his vital signs are good; he looks good, but he's in a coma for crying out loud. Yeah, it's it's important to it's important it's important to remember that the Mitchum brothers, Bradley in particular have been acting as agents of the White Lodge functionally. Sure. Hearts of gold. Yep. Back at the Buckhorn Hotel, Gordon Cole is in the command center where all of the various FBI electronic machines are buzzing and whirring. I wondered if one of them, you know, was displaying the excessive electrical discharge that we saw that ended Richard. Uh, But Jeff, you had some thoughts on this scene in particular. Yeah, I mean, maybe all this, like, I mean, I love this scene and I loved again how long this was held and I started laughing. Uh, and I, you know, and, and maybe it's just Lynch uh, or Gordon Cole listening carefully, you know, to this equipment and, you know, maybe there's a, a purpose to this. But I thought that, um, you know, it does lead in nicely and kind of match, uh, you know, the, the next scene uh, back in the hospital where we see. Dougie's uh, life support machines making similar uh, kind of noises and uh, motions. But I, you know, I, I like these kind of meta uh, commentaries. And I, I thought this was perhaps on some level, Lynch, you know, he, as Gordon, he's just sort of sitting there listening to all these machines. And I, I sort of felt like this was his commentary, perhaps on the extraneous digital and modern technology in general. It's a tool he can use. It can be useful, but ultimately there's just too much of it and it's overwhelming and sort of absurd. Um, and I also sus- feel like this is a clue that no matter how many digital tracking devices, databases, et cetera, the FBI has at its disposal. And based on how much has been imported into this hotel room at the Mayfair Hotel Room in Buckhorn, South Carolina, this is probably, or South Carolina, Buckhorn, South Dakota. This is probably using, I don't know how much of the Mayfair Hotel's electricity bill. Um, this is a Blue Rose case, and I feel like ultimately it will defy modern technology. And the way it's going to be cracked, solved, kept in check, whatever, is going to be by good old-fashioned human uh, intuition, human intelligence. And I thought about how sitting in front of all this electronic technology, Albert and Tammy you know, uh, were listening to what Diane was saying and watching her. And that's how they got the clue uh, to pull their guns uh, and Gordon, you know, sitting impassively in front of all this technology. So um, yeah, that, that that's about what I have to say uh, about this little scene that no one else seemed to think was noteworthy, but was one of my favorite things in the whole episode for whatever bizarre reason. <laughs> no, no, I think that those are all really good points. And it, I, I enjoy this scene as well. I just didn't think as many intelligent thoughts about it. We go from all the machines in the command center to all the machines that surround Dougie. Um, you know, I wondered if, if there's some connection, uh, if maybe Gordon Cole is getting a sense of what's happening in this hospital room in Las Vegas. Uh, but through intuition, not any of the machines that he's surrounded by. And basically nothing really happens other than Sonny Jim goes to use the bathroom and then uh, 
Bushnell gets a call from the office where it turns out the FBI is looking for Dougie. Um, and, you know, he, he says, what's he done now? He's in a coma. Uh, it turns out the FBI had left the office about 10 minutes ago and Bushnell leans over and starts looking at Dougie. Dougie, the, the anticipation is building. But first we go back to Lancelot Court. We see Wilson pull up in a Ford Explorer um, with, you know, beginning his stakeout of Dougie's house. And Chantel and Hutch all sort of passively watch this happen. Uh, they start bickering, you know, apparently. Uh, well, first there's this conversation between Hutch and Chantel where Hutch notes that that guy Sammy passed away and Hutch owed him money and Chantel asked him if he feels bad about that. And Hutch's response is, eh. <laughs> um, then Mitchum, the Mitchum brothers pull up uh, in their limo, followed by, you know, a big truck filled with provisions. And, you know, Chantel and Hutch are wondering if any of these people are Dougie. Um, but Chantel's like, Danny, those look like our fucking boss. Uh, and Hutch then asks Chantel if she's on the rag, uh, which, you know, we can confirm is literally never, ever a good question to ask. Chantel's response is inappropriate. So what if I fucking was? Which I, I quite enjoyed that response. Um, Chantel notes that what's going on in front of Dougie's house looks like a fucking circus parade. Uh, that's because, you know, Candy, Sandy, and was it Candy, Sandy, and Mandy? Yeah, Candy, Sandy, yes. and Mandy are, are, have, are, yeah. are, are, are coming out of the limousine, you know, bringing things into the house. Anyway, all this has happened. And then a guy pulls up to, in the street in front of the van that Hutch and Chantal are in and he gets out and he, he bangs on the door and he notes that the van is partially blocking his driveway. Uh, the van is also on the wrong side of the street and Chantal's response to this guy who's credited as Mr. Zawoski in the, uh, in the, in the credits of the show uh, after Chantal says, go fuck yourself. He says, I move car. And so he his his solution to move the car is to get into his car and to ram it directly into the van to try to push it out of the place. And of course, I immediately thought of Mr. Eddie and Lost Highway uh, and sure. David Lynch's obsession with people following the rules of the road, which include don't park on the wrong side of the street and certainly don't park in in front of somebody's driveway. And Zawaski is here to enforce those norms, which are very important in all of David Lynch's films. I mean, I think um, both of these sequences should be shown in driver's ed classes across America, you know, to educate that's right. yeah, both, teenagers. Both, uh, yeah, def- definitely. I think that I think that there are there are true consequences for uh, not following the rules. I I can't help noticing that the Zawaski, the Polish accountant, is his car interlocked with Tim Roth's van. I immediately thought of the movie Gridlocked, uh, the classic 1997 Tim Roth Tupac film <laughs> in which they play jazz musicians uh, and heroin addicts who decide to kick uh, heroin and go clean after their friend dies. Uh, and, you know, they kind of avoid drug dealers and cops and have to go through a bureaucratic hassle to get into rehab. It notably was released after Tupac died, according to some people, in 1996. Uh, just as the return is released after the deaths of 
It's trying to make you for air and He's not Coulson. Elvis for crying out loud. <laughs> I I don't I, I don't I don't have a, an opinion uh, about it. Um, Give that shout out to Tupac Truthers, Jr. That's right. This cannot be a real movie. I do not believe this movie. I can't believe this movie either. It's, it's, a it's a real it's movie. Real. No, it was. I I remember. I remember it being out. That that cannot be seeing. It, but I, I remember like talking the university, memory, like, the university like the of Georgia genie movie. No, no, it's real. I I was a projectionist. I put it together. I I broke it out of its in, in, into smaller reels to play at the university theater. I, I remember the movie. It, it actually happened. It did not do well commercially. You, you, you may not have even <laughs> played in your town. Sounds uh, like an implanted tulpa memory to me. Right. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, every movie that came out in 1997. This is stunning to me. I can't believe this crazy I, 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 plot I, I, exists. I never surprised. heard of this either. I really, I really want to see this. Now. No, I, no, I, I'm going to back Jr. up on this, and I, I don't, and I'm trying really hard to remember Jr. because our friend Pam Brannon. I had she definitely went to about see it. She gridlock. definitely went to see I it. I don't remember what it was, but it was some like somebody in the movie looked like one of us, or we looked like one of us looked like somebody in the movie, or something. I remember Gridlocked being like a huge deal, even to those of us who did not see Gridlocked. I just want to I just want to point out that the correct pronunciation of the movie is Gridlocked. There's a apostrophe between the K like, and the D. Okay, uh, and I so just like want to kids make up, very clear, plural, kids uh, up, that, that we're gridlocked. We're, we're making yeah. it correct for the record here. Yeah. Okay. So I looked this up on IMDb, and and you're right, it does exist. Um, and uh, it was directed by and written by Vondi Curtis Hall, whose next directorial endeavor was the Mariah Carey vehicle Glitter. Just to Ooh. give you an idea. <laughs> That that is insane. Now I need to see that movie. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> a, a Polish accountant is about to kill a bunch of people. So <laughs> let's get back to that. Uh, <laughs> when so so this Chantel's- reminds me of a, a independent '90s movie about Polish. Never mind. I'm not gonna. No. <laughs> yes. No. Don't do that. There- so Chantel's response to Mr. Zawaski's attempt to ram the van out of the way is to pull out a gun and shoot him. And, and we really thought that she would get him. It really looked like he, he got it based on where the, the bullet hole in the front windshield was, but apparently not. He runs to the back of the car and pops the trunk and pulls out. It's like a fucking Mac 10 or like a Uzi or something. It's like a submachine gun uh, and, you know, shoots at Chantal, he he. What does Chant- Chantal says that he grazed her or something? Winged her. At, he winged, wing, her. He winged yeah. her. Uh And you know, Hutch is you know very responsible and pragmatic and says, "Let's get out of here." Uh, a really good choice for for this couple, but Chantal isn't going to have it. She uh, pulls out a shotgun and starts shooting and attempts to back off, but you know, Mister uh, Zawaski just totally blows up the van with bullets kills Chantal and then uh, the as the as the van's kind of driving past with with Hutch in the back he just riddles the side of the van with bullets and the back of the van with bullets so Hutch is just like kind of standing up in the back of the van he just falls dead and the van sort yeah, of it gets real reservoir dogs yeah here. very reservoir very Quentin Tarantino no doubt uh, and the van just kind of rolls down the street, 
Uh, and in the meantime, two things have happened. Finally, the FBI decides to get involved. Uh, they've kind of watched this gunfight happen. Once the van is rolling down the street with two dead people in it, uh, the two agents that are in the car get out and tell uh, Mr. Zawaski to put the gun on the ground and put his hands up. In the meantime, the Mitchum brothers have, you know, kind of poke, come out of that, poke their heads out of the house, both of their handguns drawn, and, you know, kind of look around at what's happening. And I think initially, uh, Bradley says, what the fuck kind of neighborhood is this? <laughs> Which, you know, that's a good question. Valid question. Very good. I mean, it's, it is it is remarkable that that is the person who just happens to live across the street from Dougie Jones. And, uh, but, you know, uh, Bradley's brother says, you know, people are under a lot of stress, Bradley. Which is uh, great, like, but maybe the best line of the whole episode, except for literally every word that comes out of Kyle McLaughlin's mouth. Right. So yeah, that that that's that's the end of that. That's the end of Hutch and Chantal, uh, characters that we en- enjoyed, but they were just bad. There was nothing redeeming about them other than they had a pretty good, you know, interpersonal relationship, but were, uh, you know, and they said ge- some entertaining gen- things. Yeah, they said some entertaining things, and I think. You know, this is uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost, you know, may have a message here that they're not quite on board with, you know, the Quentin Tarantino mode of things of these, you know, dark anti-hero, funny, pulp fiction-y, murderous characters hanging around, you know, without getting, you know, wiped out and, and having justice done for them. You know, Doc the Zorowski, uh Maybe, you know, maybe he was he was an accountant for Sammy. Yeah, I I I, mean, I, I liked all the kind of for you know the the foreshadowing of their ends here. I mean, I did say last week that in the end of the Hutch and Chantal uh, scene in episode fifteen, Chantal does point out the planet Mars. That was, as I said last week, the patron planet of you know of weapons, accident, surgery, violence, war. All those things definitely uh, caught up with Hutch and Chantal on uh, on Lancelot Court, and then you know, as you said, right before uh, you know they get involved with the Polish accountant, Hutch is talking about their friend Sammy, who he owed money to his death, and then literally Chantal is down to her last bag of uh, substitute Cheetos uh, here. So their 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 deaths were were foreshadowed nicely uh, in clever ways. I felt like by the uh, by Lynch and Frost. Yeah, and I definitely think JR is right. I definitely think there's a message to the scene, and the message is don't fuck with Polish people who go into white collar professions. Or just obey the traffic laws. I think that's I think that's the through line of Twin Peaks the Return, whether it's whether it's Richard Horn's driving or whether it's the Chantal and Hutch. I mean, look, bad drivers meet with horrendous ends in this episode. Everybody who's driving safely, good Cooper. He's an excellent driver. He drives the car very well. Good things happen to him. But the people who drive badly, no, this is this is going to end poorly for you. Right. And and Kyla also agree with you that I feel like at some point when they were trying to pitch this season to the Showtime execs, this 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 shootout scene was mentioned in some way. Yeah, except they shot the original cut in Luxembourg for tax break purposes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe that's why the accountant is has a Polish last name. Maybe that get allows them to get Polish 
tax credits for for having a character with a Polish last name, even if you don't actually go to Poland. And this yeah, might, background stuff. And, his background will be shot in Krakow, and it'll it'll show up in the missing pieces final dossier Gold oh, Box and, Kyle edition. And this might not be clear to the half of the panel here who has not seen Inland Empire, but a lot of that film was shot in Poland. Yeah, really? Wow, huh? Yeah. I'm just looking forward to to uh, Tammy Preston's annotations of the story of Mr. Zawaski and finding out how he ties into armpit sparkle rash girl and and green fish puke girl. Yeah, and trick. I'm sorry, I forgot about trick. Yeah, yeah written no. by Kieran Gillen with art by Erica Henderson. It's going to be great. I I I, I do think that uh, Mr. Zawaski's placement was intentional there. In front of Dougie Jones' house as, as some sort of sleeper cell to be awakened to bring out maximum violence as necessary against uh, against the agents of Mr. C. But anyway, here we're, we've we've come to the main event, guys. This is it. This is what happened. This is what had me like throwing my arms up into the air and coming into work the next day, ready to spread the gospel of Twin Peaks. I literally went office to office telling colleagues about how great Twin Peaks was and how if they keep watching the original series and come to the return, uh, that they, they're not going to be disappointed. Uh, this, this is where, you know, I, I couldn't stop smiling. So Bushnell hears a ringing like, like in the great Northern, but instead of coming from where we might think Dougie's bed or machines or something, it, it leads him out of the room. Then we see. We see Coop. He pulls the tube out of his throat. Uh, He immediately sits up. And then Mike appears on the seat of the chair next to his bed. Uh, And Mike says in backwards Black Lodge speak, you are awake. And Cooper says, 100%. (laughs) <laughs> and and it's the most beautiful thing ever. Mike says the other one didn't go back in. He's still out. He gives Coop the owl ring. Coop, you know, fully with his, in charge of his faculties, aware of things that we ourselves are not aware. Do you have the seed? Do you have the seed? And at that point, uh, Mike in the Black Lodge pulls from behind his ear the metal ball that is the thing to which uh, Dougie was reduced when he was sent back to the Black Lodge. And Coop says, I need you to make another one. He pulls hair from the back of his head and hands it to Mike. It's pretty amazing that they can hand things to each other in this interdimensional porter that appears there in the hospital. Mike seems to understand, you know, what's going on. And, uh, Coop puts the owl ring under the pillow just in time for when Sonny Jim and Janie E appear. You know, he's everybody's favorite father. He tells Sonny Jim to come on in for a hug. And, you know, he's his the first thing he does in his interactions with the rest of the world. Ken, you noted it, it's really beautiful. The first thing he does is to be there and to love on Janie E and Sonny Jim. Uh, and and to be focused upon their well-being because it looks like he's going to create another tulpa of himself 
uh, right. in order to live with Janie E and Sonny Jim to replace himself. You know, Janie E and Sonny Jim, uh, after they come in, Bushnell uh, and come in, Coop is is great. He's, you know, he, he tells Janie and Sonny to go get a doctor. He said, you know, Bushnell, Bushnell, hand me those sandwiches. I'm hungry. <laughs> it's it's great. It's perfect. It's original recipe, Cooper. Uh, and, and Bushnell says the FBI is looking for him, and Coop says perfect. Yeah, it, it's just such a fantastic scene. Uh, it put, Coop needs Bushnell's thirty-two sub nose that he carries under his left arm. This is classic Cooper uh, identifying specific details about people that they don't realize they're broadcasting to someone who is observant and intuitive and prescient as Cooper. Uh, and you know, and, and Bushnell gives it to him and, uh, he leaves him a note for Gordon Cole to read when inevitably Gordon Cole calls for, for, for Coop there at the hospital. Uh, he calls the Mitchum brothers who are going to gas up a jet to take him to Spokane. I mean, it's just fantastic. Uh, we, the main theme of twin peaks starts, and it and it and it swells as as all of this is happening, you know we're we're all like really excited. We're filled with emotions, uh, and, and and the climax is when, as he's leaving, uh, at Coop thanks Bushnell for all his kindness and decency, and the only kind of formal, proper, yet almost naive way that Coop can be, and the way that he thanks Bushnell. But he's not really naive he, at the, anymore. He's wise. Clearly, he recognizes in Bushnell, I think, a kindred spirit. Um, Bushnell, it turns out, is a good guy. He fights hard. He's very smart. Uh, and he's very thankful for Bushnell's kindness, which is real. I mean, Bushnell believed in Coop when he was, we now know, fully aware of what was going on in this, you know, seemingly mindless hull that was Dougie. You know, clearly Coop is aware of everything that happened to him when he was Dougie, but was unable to express or do, you know, seemingly more than 0.1% of what he probably wanted to be doing at the time. He was able to shine through at certain moments when he would identify uh, the inconsistencies in the, you know, paperwork he was given. And he's aware that Bushnell, who could have been like, throw this crazy guy out, uh, was able to see what Coop was trying to co- communicate when he was Dougie. So anyway, it, 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 it was an aside, but Coop thanks Bushnell for his kindness. And then Bushnell says, what about the FBI? And just as like the Twin Peaks music is swelling, Coop says, I am the FBI. It's, oh, it's just the best. <laughs> it's just the best. And they drive to the, the casino. Oh, I mean, it was, I mean, I think, yeah, you, you covered it really well. I mean, for me, it was just, thinking about patience again in the long game that this uh if this had happened in episode two it wouldn't have had the impact but the fact that we had all been there with coop for you know hours of actual episode time and months of time watching this and kind of waiting along with the 25 26 years however you want to count it you know since uh the original show aired and it, it and we got to see, you know, what Kyle was calling original recipe, Dale Cooper. Ah, uh, it was beautiful. You know, it was, it was, it, it paid off. It was an astonishingly joyful, beautiful sequence. And yeah, one of, one of, one of the best things I've ever seen on television. And I also loved how, 
early in the season, especially after the first four episodes, one of the things a lot of people, including uh, some of us, commented on was just how much we missed that Battle of Menti music uh, and just music in general and how sparingly music was used, especially in those first you know, four episodes. Uh, but the payoff for the main theme of Twin Peaks, which I'm pretty sure this was the only time outside of the credits for each episode, this appeared inside any episode. Uh, oh, right. it was it was glorious. It was wonderful. So I'm, actually, I'm going to stop. I'm going to pull all three of you. Waiting till episode 16. Worth it? Yes, absolutely. Kyle, Kyle says yes. I say yes. 100%. Jeff, yes. 100%. Can. Worth it. Probably no. I, I have to say no because <laughs> I have to be to some extent consistent. Look, th- this was great, man. Everything about this scene was really, really great. And I liked the way that this endeavor that we've engaged in made this a really, really extra fun scene to watch because it seemed like, like if you've watched a your favorite basketball team run the same pick and roll play a million times over the course of a, of a season, you can know when they're going to deploy it and how exactly it's going to work, right? So like two seconds before the owl ring, I was like, oh, now he gets the owl ring, right? <laughs> like, it was like I was seeing it all happen just a few seconds before it was going to happen, because all we do, you know, is talk about this show and and uh, read about this show and think about this show all week long, every week for many, many weeks at a time. So we wouldn't have had that. I wouldn't have had that amount of satisfaction if they had given us famous original Cooper sooner. Uh, but boy, like we're going to get two hours, uh, two and a half hours of uh, of the original Cooper out of a possible 18 and an awful lot of this Jacques Tati homage Dougie thing instead. I, I think in the, in the main, I have to vote against that. Right. Um, but boy, the way they executed it was as, as perfect as possible. So it's like a super weak. No, super weak. I, you know, no from, but, you know, I, but I, Ken, I, we couldn't. <laughs> Yeah, we Don't could all have seen all of it coming. I mean, I, it, 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 you're right. The the owl ring, yeah. I mean, you immediately said, okay, now we know what the plan is. You put it, you know, you shoot Doppel Cooper, you stick it on his finger, boom, he goes into the Black Lodge where he belongs, which I don't think is what's going to happen, but but it certainly sets that up. Um, but I, the thing that I loved was that he immediately, the first thing was, do you have the seed? Here, take one of my hairs. You need some Cooper DNA so you can make a new Dougie because I don't want to leave Janie E and Sonny Jim without a Dougie. I mean, that was, that was the first thing. I, I didn't see that coming. That had yeah. been a thing I think we'd all been concerned about of, okay, when he wakes up, what happens to them? Well, that's the first thing he thinks of. And that's, you know, Cooper thinking on the micro level, uh, for doing good by people. You know, he does well on the macro level, but, you know, he said it himself after he was shot. You know, I would like in general to treat people with more kindness. Well, here he does that. He treats these people with kindness. He shows that appreciation for him. JR, you were right about Bushnell and I was wrong, but he acknowledges that and he tells that to all of the people who have helped. He expresses his gratitude and then he just completely takes charge, you know, gets on the phone with these guys and says, hey, I need you to gas up a plane and take me to Spokane. I'm like, okay, whatever you say. You're the boss. And and everybody just defers to him. Again, not because he beats somebody in arm wrestling, not because they're scared of him, but because he's this good, decent guy who knows what he's doing. And everybody says, okay, I will follow that. And that, frankly, is a, is a welcome sentiment. Um, you know, we had to wait, uh, uh, 15 episodes for it. Well, you know, some of us have been, uh, in politics waiting our whole lives for that. So, uh, it's nice to see it when it happens, even if we have to wait longer than we wanted to wait. And I was, I was also going to say, and I realized this when we were talking about this, we did get Cooper 
a bit in the lodge, you know, in episodes one, two, and, and even part of three, when he starts descending, you know, I guess, uh, through the different zones. Uh, and I also kind of realized that it's more or less roughly halfway through episode three, right? That Cooper goes through the electrical socket right. and sort of becomes Dougie. And we roughly have him waking up, you know, uh, right. two and a half episodes before the end. So there's uh-huh. this nice symmetry kind of in the architecture yeah. of the season, you know, where we... Uh, panel three, panel 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And, you know, another thing that occurred to me as we've been talking is that, well, what if Coop did come back sooner? I, I think that they made a choice here, which was they ended season two with Cooper's doppelganger out in the world. And I think that it would be too much powerful, charismatic uh, Kyle McLaughlin chewing up every scene he's in if we had original recipe, recipe Cooper and Mr. C running around through the whole episode. I think we just overwhelm the show. And I think in order for them to show Mr. C and to develop that character, they had to, you know, kind of denude, uh, dilute the character of Coop, which was which they did masterfully and perfectly through Dougie. So and it kind of makes I've, sense when you think of it on those terms. And as I've said, kind of, you know, throughout our discussions here, I think there's a lot to be learned from the character of Cooper oh, as absolutely, Dougie. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But right. the point is that the the role and how it's presented in the show doesn't overwhelm your attention yeah. in a way that I, I really do think original Cooper does. And absolutely, if we had both original Cooper and Mr. C running around, it would just be like the Kyle McLaughlin show. Yeah, that's a great uh, point, Chair. Well, and as Jeff has pointed out, as Jeff pointed out several times, you know, as much as we loved original recipe Cooper, he was a flawed character. And in fact, the reason that Doppel Cooper was released on the world is because of his failings in the Black Lodge, both the failings that got him there and the failings he exhibited in there. And, and this is the course of, of Dale Cooper's perfection. This is him arriving at that moment of perfect courage. This was essential. The flawed guy who came out of the Black Lodge needed this time to get back to being the person that he wasn't before. I mean, he's a better Dale Cooper than he was when we saw him go into the Black Lodge, and he needed this. This is part of that alchemy, uh, literal or, or metaphorical, that he's going through to transform him into the guy he needs to be uh, to defeat the evil Cooper on this side of the Black Lodge. So I, I don't think it's it's accidental at all. It makes sense from a narrative standpoint, you know, as, as we're watching the show, but it also is critical to the development of the character. Yeah, I love the evolution of the character, and it is really Buddhist, right? He's literally being reborn each time he evolves, right. uh, which is really cool. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's right back to the, I've become very f- interested lately in the plight of the people of Tibet, you know? Uh, right. So, I, I like that, and I like the things you're saying. Some of it feels a little like post hoc rationalization. I'm not sure I buy the notion that it would be too much Cooper to have uh, the real agent Cooper squaring off against bad Cooper earlier in the season. Uh, but fundamentally, I just think the problem is if somebody comes up to you, like my brother has just started watching the original series, right? He's like, I want to listen to your podcast, but I have a lot of hours of TV to watch first, right? So, uh, if somebody comes up to you and says, I've just started watching the original series, and I say, Well, what do you like about 
about it. I'm like, boy, I love Agent Cooper. Agent Cooper is the greatest character. I really love that character. I'll just watch him do anything every single week, right? I'm really going to enjoy Kyle McLaughlin because he's back in the show 25 years later, right? You know, and then what do you say to them? Well, sure, you know, 15 and a half hours in, you'll, you'll really enjoy him. It's going to be great after you get through those first 15 and a half hours. It's a, it's a tough ask, you know? Um, and so, like I say, it's a, it's a hesitant no, but yeah. Great scene. Great scene. Yeah, I mean, I just don't – I think if that's what you want to watch the show for, then, you know, you're not appreciating it in its fullness. Um, but, you know, I, I agree. Yeah, no, what Cooper is, he's the bodhisattva. He's reached enlightenment. Now he's come back into the world to spread compassion uh, and, and to help out everyone else. And, um, and but it's interesting because part of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was ab- right. absolutely That's necessary right. for that process. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny because at the very beginning, I did feel some ambiguity because, you know, we don't generally get the notion that tulpas are good or forces of good in the universe. We don't, we know of no one who's created a tulpa in the show so far who isn't a baddie, right? So, right. And, and, and the, it necessarily involves powerful, mysterious forces. Frequently not used for good. We know that they require, you know, massive amounts of supervision. You know, there are a lot of variables involved. You know, uh, tulpas aren't necessarily the the best solution. Well, necessarily it isn't the best solution because that's not what Janie E wants. We would assume she she has fallen in love with what I think she realizes by the time we're in the casino, a man that isn't Dougie. Uh, and, you know, what will this Tulpa represent? Because the Tulpa will be neither Dougie nor this original Cooper uh, that, you know, has been so wonderful and amazing and magnetic. So the idea – I mean, I totally get why Coop wants to make a Tulpa out of compassion for Janie E. and Sonny Jim. But I'm also wondering if that may be a trap itself. But those other Tulpas were made by uh, Doppel Cooper with the help of Bob using Black Lodge spirits. I mean, this one, Mike – Coming from the White Lodge is going to be creating this using, you know, the the not only original Dale Cooper DNA, but new and improved, uh, you know, Daily Llama DNA that he's going to be able to create this new, not llama like, you know, llama breath, but the Dalai Lama that they they're going to be creating a higher quality of tulpa, uh, and, and I think you'll get a better Dougie certainly than the original. No, I even I, if it's I, not I, as good I totally, as I totally agree with that. I and I see I see your point. It may be fine, but. There, there was some, some part of something in the back of my head nagged at me, like, hmm, maybe a tulpa isn't a good idea. Um, and, and the second thing is the, the ring, you know, the, that he took the ring and, and that Mike gave him the ring. We know that the ring itself is also ambiguous. Uh, I agree with you, Kyle. It seems to be like really plain that, you know, the, the same, uh, strategy that Mr. C had for, getting rid of Ray and Ray had for getting rid of Mr. C with the ring. Um, is it play here? But you know, it's funny cause I thought about that for a minute and I thought, well, why did Mr. C use the ring to get rid of Ray? Why does he care whether or not Ray is in the black lodge? Why doesn't he just kill him? And that'll be the end of it. So I'm wondering if there's something about Ray that we don't know that makes him more important than he needs to be. Because when you think back to it, like there's no reason at all for him to waste an owl ring, which I can assume are not, you know, freely available in massive quantities uh, to get rid of Ray. I don't think we talked about this when it happened, Uh, but it, it kind of bothers me now that I'm thinking about it because if he hadn't 
use the ring to get rid of Ray, then Mike wouldn't have had it to give it to Dale, assuming there's only one of them. Uh, so maybe it just had to happen in order for Dale to end up with the ring, but it's a, it seems like a bad call on Mr. C's part. Unless there is something about Ray that we don't know yet. So, yeah. Right, right, right. It's just bad luck then for, 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 for Mr. C that his doom is contained in what he uh, uses to get rid of Ray. All right, so we're back at the Buckhorn Hotel. Diane's at the bar. She's in a blue sweater. Uh, she's Thank got, you very much. She sees the coop text and completely freaks out, like just freaks out. She's really, really upset when she sees the happy face ALL from Mr. C. She she puts she she drinks her her drink. She is remembering something. She sends a number back by text. I hope this works. Uh, it's it's a long string of digits, look a lot like the coordinates we've seen in the show before she sends and she, she gasps uh, like it might somehow have an effect that she, you know, we don't understand. Uh, she looks into her handbag, uh, sees a lighter, a pack of cigarettes and a gun. And, you know, she starts walking down the hall in the hotel. Uh, the American river American woman, uh, song by the Muddy Magnolias remixed by David Lynch, which we first heard in episode one when Mr. C was driving to, was it Eula's house? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, is now playing and it's really, really, a, you know, disturbing. I mean, I, I'm so ready to see uh, Cole get his brains, you know, blown out because we've been saying he's right. going to die for several episodes now. And I'm right. you know, assuming that that's what's going to happen. Uh, Cole seems to know Diane is there, tells her to come in before she knocks. Um, and, you know, uh, Jeff, I also was reminded of uh, Gordon outside of the host hotel room a few episodes back Laura's with appearance, the, flash, the, flash, the, the yeah. flash of Laura that, that had right. that really freaked me out. So and it's funny because there's, there's she there's no knock nor doorbell. uh plays out the same way that Doppel Cooper or Mr. C entered her place that she's going to describe in a minute. Diane comes in and she sits down and she talks about what happened that night that she told Gordon that, you know, he would, she would tell him at some point Uh, it was three or four years after Cooper had disappeared. He appeared at her house, no knock, no doorbell, just walked in. She was so happy to see him. She held him close, but he was just grilling her about what was going on at the FBI. She wanted to know where he'd been and what he'd been doing, but she had told herself that he was just excited about bureau no- news. Uh, he he leaned in to kiss her like she had done once before. And the best I can tell is that this has something to do with there's like a flirty scene between the two of them, although Diane's off screen and the the missing pieces to fire walk with me. And there was was also there's they did go to dinner together and enjoy uh, a delicious Peking duck in, uh, I think, June 1988, according to my life, my tapes. So nice. So there there may there may have been a post duck kiss uh, that evening. Uh, Anyway, this is the second time they kissed, but something went really wrong. And she became afraid. And then when, as she describes, Cooper saw the fear in her, he smiled and he smiled and she, she starts to make a motion 
uh, Kyle, that you pointed out that, that something about his face. And I also was reminded of the face of Bob that appeared when Mr. C was at prison. And I, right. you know, we wonder, cause this is a very Bob thing that's about to happen that, that, that face appeared on Mr. C's face as she was doing this. Uh, and then he, she says that he, that he raped her. Ken, you wanted to talk about the naked kiss. Yeah. So in much the same way that Janie E. earlier reminded me of Constance Towers in Shock Corridor, Laura Dern here reminds me of Constance Towers in probably her greatest role in Sam Fuller's The Naked Kiss. In The Naked Kiss, uh, which starts with an extremely famous uh, subjective POV, camera subjective kind of a shot of a man getting beaten to shit with a high-heeled shoe. Um Constance Towers plays another sex worker and uh, she has this relationship. She's sort of gone straight and she's met this guy uh, and their relationship is going fine until they kiss. Uh, And then she has this famous monologue uh, where she reveals that uh, she has suspicions about him. She says, once before a man's kiss tasted like that, he was put away in a psycho ward. I got the same taste the first time Grant kissed me. It was a, what we call a naked kiss. It's the sign of a pervert. And the idea is they find out that he's a pedophile and uh, in much the same way that the movie science and psychology in Shock Corridor are ridiculous. It's ridiculous, of course, that you can taste pedophilia by kissing someone, but it's another incredible performance and a very iconic line uh, by Constance Towers. And I got a flash directly to it when Dern said the thing about something went wrong and I felt afraid. It's very, very much the same as, uh, as this idea uh, once before a man's kiss tasted like that. So uh, I liked that, and it, it took me right back to to Constance Towers and to Shock Corridor. Yeah, and I was reminded again of the importance of touch. You know, in this season of uh, Twin Peaks, it seems like this moment of you know a kiss, intimate contact between Diane and Mr. C starts. Oh, it's unclear what she's talking about. I mean, it seems like on one level she's talking about the start, you know, of her rape, but you know, in violation by Mr. C. But it also seems like she's perhaps talking about possession you know uh his control over her or almost it seems like hypnosis of her in a way perhaps by means of which he created her her tulpa um and this moment of touch here between diane and mr c would sort of seem to be the polar opposite of uh, that moment that i like so much when uh cooper as dougie you know gave anthony sinclair the massage uh at the the coffee shop in vegas which seemed to defuse anthony and uh, set him on his uh, path for forgiveness uh, and recovery. Uh, and then I was also reminded here of that weird little moment when Mr. C, you know, was massaging. I can never remember the guy's face, the guy who enjoyed spaghetti so much at the diner uh, and seemingly killed Jack. Him. Jack. Was it Jack? Jack I, think, maybe? I think that was Jack. Yeah. But that uh, Mr. C's power of touch seems uh, disturbing. Yeah. Diane starts to say what happened after he raped her. And she says that Coop took her to an old gas station, which, you know, it, it wasn't an old gas station. She wasn't sure. And, and at this point, she, it's almost like she's having a seizure. Her, her demeanor changes. And, you know, the acting here by Laura Dern is just amazing throughout the whole yeah. scene. But th- she switches. Uh, there's like a noticeable switch at this point. And she, she says, not here. Does she I'm say that? Me. I know. I'm not me. I'm not me. I'm That's not right. Me. She's right. She yeah. starts saying, I'm not me. I'm not me. And then she says, 
and I think Kyle and I both listen to this really closely and we think that the subtitles are wrong. Subtitles, yeah. she says, I'm in the sheriff's state- station. I'm in the sheriff's statement station. I sent him those coordinates. I'm in the sheriff's statement station. But it, sa- but it looks like when we listen to it really carefully, she says, I'm the sheriff's state- station. The second time, I'm the sheriff's station. The third time, I'm the sheriff's station, like a, as, a, as a question. And, you know, it's it's really uh, intense. And she pulls out the gun. At this point, Albert and Tammy, I think as soon as she said, I'm not me, Albert reached for his gun. Like, he knew what was going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, clearly they're, you know, much faster and better shots. Uh, and they shoot her a couple times and she whooshes away uh, the same way that we saw uh, Laura fly away in from the black lodge or was that her doppelganger now that I think about it uh, in, in an earlier episode, like one of the first same way Lois Duffy flew away when, when she was shot too. Yes, that's right. Same way she disappeared after, after she'd been shot by Lois Duffy. And, yeah, and Tammy says they're real. That was a real topa. <laughs> and which and, I think is an oxymoron by the way. I don't think you can be a real topa. It's like being a jumbo shrimp or a down escalator. Those those are a contradiction in terms. Well, you could be a, a drawing of a topa. You could be like a wax model of a topa. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, the, a knockoff the, the angel is, becomes the angel is it a Doctor Who thing? Yeah, maybe. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. A knockoff handbag is still a handbag, though, right? It's not a real um, Prada. It's a knockoff Prada, but it's still a handbag. Real Tulpa is still a real person. I loved how excited Tammy got over her first Tulpa experience. You know, she uh, this <laughs> yeah. this was her first true uh, Blue Rose experience, and I don't think she, we never forget our first Tulpa, do we? Whether it's real or not. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think any of us disagree on what she says. We all heard her say, I'm the sheriff station. You can't hear her say in. I just took in from the subtitles. The subtitles are convinced she said, right. I'm in the sheriff station yeah. each time. But but none of us actually heard her say the yeah. word in. I heard it the way JR. Well, and particularly, it, yeah. particularly since Gordon says sheriff station, like he's confused by it. And, and it, it makes no sense for him to be confused if what she said was, I'm in the sheriff station. I mean, Gordon's been with the Blue Rose Task Force. Literally since day one, he saw a tulpa disappear the same way that, that Diane disappeared here. Um, you know, since he's arrived in Buckhorn, he's had a vision of Laura Palmer. He's had a dream about Dale Cooper. He's spoken to Sheriff Truman about there being two Coopers. He's seen the body of Garland Briggs, who is in a place and at an age where he shouldn't be. Uh, and, and so if a Diane tulpa says, I'm not me and I'm in the sheriff's station, it ought to make perfect sense to Gordon when she disappears like a tulpa does, that the real Diane is in the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Station. If she said, I'm in the Sheriff's Station, he ought to be on the phone to Frank Truman right now going, hey, have you got somebody in in the Sheriff's Station there who might be Diane? And a lot of people are thinking that it's that it's Nido. But if she's saying she was the Sheriff's Station, well, it's understandable why Gordon is confused by that. And with her talking about having gone to a gas station uh, with Doppelcooper, you know, that sounds an awful lot like the convenience store, and I have to wonder whether, you know, is the real Diane in the convenience store? You know, what does I'm the sheriff's station mean? Does it mean that Nido and Freddie and everybody who's in the sheriff's station is in danger because Doppelcooper has somehow got somebody in the building, which, oh, by the way, is where the coordinates lead him? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you make a very well. Look, we all agree she didn't say I'm in the sheriff station. She said I'm the sheriff station, and you you make a very convincing argument, Kyle, that uh, you know. A, I guess a circumstantial argument that she didn't say that based on Gordon Cole's reaction or lack of reaction to what she said. Uh, I, however, I'm agnostic as to whether or not Nido is Diane in some way. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there, there, there are reasons to think it's the case uh, that yeah. she could be, you know, clearly Diane is the Topa. Uh, the Diane that we've known is a topa of Diane. Right. That, that right. Di- Diane may be a good character. We don't know what kind of horrendous things Mr. C or the woodsman or who, whoever did to her that would have sure. resulted in her being Nido, a very important person that Andy has been charged to protect by the White Lodge. You know, who, who is the, who was the person who we remember originally came into this whole business as the one who would know the difference between the two Coopers. Um, right. You know, uh, some, some bronzer and a better haircut is, would seem to be enough of a distinction for the rest of us. But, uh, you know, the, the fact that, that, you know, I, I think she's going to play an important role. We know Nido's going to play an important role. I think it's just too, too early to say. Um, so, and, and Nido, phonetically, Nido spelled backwards is O-Diane. Now, if she were known as Nido E, then we'd know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. That's right. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, I, I kept, somewhere on Facebook, somebody was talking about how much uh, they they love Janie E and that she should get her sp- a spinoff show. Evans, yeah, we should get yeah. an Evans Sisters show. Yeah. That would, that, I mean, and that would be And by the way, depending on, depending on the timing, uh, is it? Is it possible that the reason they're estranged is because Diane recognized that the original Dougie was a tulpa of evil Cooper? That's a pretty compelling reason. I mean, you could certainly understand why yeah, that, that would be very upsetting a thing to her, would, or, or even whether yeah. whether a tulpa or not. She probably doesn't have anything to do with anybody who looks like Cooper. Yeah, uh, sure. Especially but, that but, much like Cooper. Especially given that she right. herself is a tulpa that's under some weird, you know, mind control, uh, right. you know, uh, Manchurian candidate, you know, influence of from Mr. C. Yeah, there there could be a lot of reasons why Janie E would have nothing to be d- do with her sister or vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go to the Red Room, can I pose a yeah. question for everyone? Sure, 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 sure. Uh, why did they deputize Tulpa Diane? Why did she have to be part of this investigation, according to the FBI? What was Gordon's angle there? I think they wanted her to get the coordinates and to think that she was in deep enough to have legit- legitimate access to the coordinates. That's my guess. And I, and I think so just the, to keep keep her close to them, no matter what else happens. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah that, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Although it still seems like sort of a misstep on the coordinates. You think it's t- it's Jerry? You think it's just uh, know where Mister C is going to end up? That if she sends the coordinates, they can then assume that he's going to end up in the same place they're going to end up. I mean, I think I think there's that, and I think there's the idea that she's not going to be in a position to open up to them if she's not around. Right? There, there's there's no way she's going to be staying at this hotel in Buckhorn. Without, you know, a little bit of money and a gun and the ability to see this through, which she 
you know, she's she's obviously conflicted in one way or another, but I think they figured if she's a double agent, if we keep her around, then we have access to her communications uh, with, with right. Mr. C. If she's not a double agent, then she's going to come clean, you know, and she can help us. Right. Got it. Yeah, yeah and they've got all that equipment there, and, and Albert is clearly tracking, you know, all the bounces of the cell signal through Mexico or wherever, and, and presumably if she's back in Philadelphia, that becomes harder to do. Yeah, that makes a certain amount of sense. But here, here's the question I want to pose, because Jeff saw this very differently from me. When they fire their guns, they go back to the empty green chair where Diane had been sitting, and it looks to me like there are no bullet holes there. And Jeff, you're telling me you saw bullet holes. I thought so, yeah. I thought I saw like four small bullet holes in there. I mean, I'm not green challenging green. you. I, I I'm, I'm I asking that because I didn't, and so I'm, I'm wanting to know what I missed. Ken, have you got it? Pulled yeah. up, are you tracking along? Yeah, I have it right up right now. Uh, I actually have it paused at forty-one minutes thirty seconds even, and I can see four small holes in the in the group. There green are holes. Velvet. Okay, I have right. started well, downloading well, these bad. in ten eighty p. So at the higher resolution. Okay, well really then, helps. Jeff, I, I owe you an apology, like I owe Jr. an apology. No I problem. missed that because in my mind, and, and I hate this now because in my mind we talked about Quentin Tarantino, and I just had this vision of the scene where they unloaded their weapons, and yet there were no bullet holes, and and. In my head, all day long, I swear to God, I've been replaying Pulp Fiction starring Gordon Cole and Albert Rosenfeld. And, you know, the, do you know what that means, Albert? It means God came down and stopped the bullets. God came down and stopped the bullets, Albert. And seriously, replay every scene of Pulp Fiction in your head with Albert and Gordon, and it will be the greatest movie you've ever seen. I think you're onto something there. That's great. I'll do I'll do an episode sixteen point five with Jr. and I will just recreate. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fiction. That, that with sounds Gordon and Albert. Um, okay, right. So the red room scene. So yeah. Diane flies into the red room. She's in the same uh, chair where I believe we saw Dougie. Um, the the same exchange is happening. Mike says to her, "Someone manufactured her." You, Diane says, "I know." Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> And then her her jaw loosens, and I thought, you know, it immediately reminded me of, you know, the the great unhinged Sarah Palmer when that happened. Right. Uh, but something much worse is going to happen. You know, basically, she's going to collapse in black smoke uh, with a, a metallic orb seed that pops out of her neck cavity uh, that's, that originally appears quite large, you know, larger than the size of like a human fist. Uh, but then ultimately after her clothes start twitching and flipping out and, you know, very primitive, very, very primitive special effects, uh, finally her whole body collapses and dissolves in a bright crackling flash of blue electricity with only the tiny metallic orb left in the seat. Um, and that's that scene. But uh, Kyle, I think you and Jeff had more to say. Uh, yeah, but in the interest of time, I'll I'll uh, I'll shorten it a little bit and just say when when I saw her jaw come unhinged, the first thing I thought was there's a frog bug crawling out of there. Uh, go to your next point. It's a good segue into what I was going to say, Kyle. The part about Laura. 
Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, then, then, yeah. I the the question that I had was, if the tiny golden orbs are seeds, does that mean that the great big Laura golden orb that the firemen released was the seed from which Laura Palmer ultimately grew? And if that's the case, um, is is it is Laura dead, but yet she lives because there's a real Laura and a tulpa Laura, and one of them died and the other one survived? And if so, which one's which? Yeah, and that's great because actually this idea of a Laura Tulpa, uh, I thought about as well because, you know, I think one of the, the, you know, Laura's return in some way might be, you know, perhaps even more important than Cooper's return in terms of uh, the conclusion to this season uh, and possibly the conclusion to the, you know, all of Twin Peaks. And I I had the pleasure Saturday night of seeing uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me on the big screen at... uh, my local uh, art house theater uh, in downtown Athens, Georgia, Cine, they hosted a 25th anniversary screening of the film. And, you know, that and then coupled with episode 16 and all this kind of talk of tulpas and this kind of expansion of, you know, what tulpas can do. Um, I had the same thought and I wondered if Laura's kind of cryptic statement, you know, I'm dead yet I live. There might be, you know, a tulpa seems to me actually perhaps more likely than a doppelganger, but, but who knows? But I think we're going to get, some answer to that in some way. And I feel like Laura and Cooper who have met each other in dreams and perhaps in the lodge, one of the lodges, some metaphysical space. uh, I think the moment when they meet in the real world in twin peaks in some way, however (laughs) that works out, I think is going to be key to, I know we're going to do predictions later, but I feel I'm getting a sense that this is going to be uh key to the conclusion of the show. Uh, But also this, um, you know, Jerry, you're talking about earlier, but there's this sense, you know, that Coop is going to make a good tulpa. Uh, we've only seen bad tulpas uh, so far, I guess, with with Diane and an original recipe Dougie. Uh, but I was interested, I guess, in the ontological question of tulpa consciousness, uh, tulpa's capacity for spiritual intellectual development. Jerry, you are suspicious. It seems like of the notion that a tulpa could be good or you thought of them as inherently bad, I guess, but maybe that's just because that's all we've seen. Uh, it seems like Cooper has no hesitation about making one, you know, for the purpose. And as you said, Kyle, that's sort of his first conscious act upon, you know, snapping back into uh, wakefulness. Um, but I, this question of, you know, Tulpa's, I think way back in maybe like episode six or seven, I was kind of speculating about the nature of Janie E and original Dougie's marriage, you know, and kind of wondering, does Janie E, you know, if she is not a tulpa herself, you know, just sort of a regular uh, person, uh, how, how much should she suspect of Dougie's identity? You know, is, is what's it like to be married to a tulpa? Uh, and there does seem to be with both Diane and Dougie, the original recipe Dougie, a sort of hollowness or emptiness uh, at the center of them in some way, uh, a spaciness, I guess. And I was interested. I thought it was interesting that both, uh, Dougie and Diane, uh, both, you know, fi- try to fill this void with booze, I guess on, on some level, both of them, uh, are drink a lot. Uh, but it does seem in this, uh, you know, Diane's kind of Diane Tulpa's kind of final scene here. Um, there's only so much manipulation she could take and, she does seem to be able to remember aspects of original Diane's life memories uh, up to, up to a point. And it does seem like when she's given, you know, that the text message, the smiley face all, which I took as 
you know, orders from Mr. C almost along the lines of like a hypnotic suggestion or a Manchurian candidate style control word uh, to kill all the Blue Rose, you know, task force. But it seemed like she fought against that conditioning uh, in, in some way there. So, yeah, I, I, you know, in the same way we, we speculated about what's going on with, you know, Cooper is Dougie. You know, I, I, I do feel like these there is a capacity for a good tulpa and some sort of uh, moral or spiritual development uh, up to a point. And I found that really fascinating. Yeah. I think that's all. No, that, that makes good sense, Jeff. I, I, no, I like that. I mean, because you're right. Her reactions both times she looks at that text are, uh, are, are, you know, ones of shock. And in fact, the first time she sees the text, that's what, uh, that's what stops the Twin Peaks music. And then she gets up and starts moving. And then we start hearing American Woman. So the music very much tracks with that being something very sinister. And as you'd mentioned in, in the notes, uh, you know, the conversation is lively around the dinner table. I mean, he sent her a lot of these very cryptic, very inscrutable texts. And, and when, something about what you were talking about, the way they both tried to fill this hollowness with alcohol. Alcohol. It reminds me of what Walker Percy wrote about in Lost in the Cosmos uh, about ways that people cope with, you know, with the human condition. And, and certainly with Diane, there is at least the suggestion of promiscuity. Uh, certainly with Dougie, we're aware that he has a gambling problem. So we've got a lot of addictive behavior. Diane is, is in addition to drinking all the time, she's also smoking all the time. Dougie obviously is having, uh, the original Dougie was having extramarital affairs. So there's a lot of that kind of acting out, um, which is a nice counterpoint to the point you've been making about Dougie all along, the Cooper Dougie, uh, where where he's really sort of a commentary on on dealing with the absurdity of being human and being okay with it, where we've got these tulpas over here uh, who really seem to be struggling with that idea, probably because they're not natural-born humans. Yeah. They were manufactured for purposes. Yeah. And yet, I mean, there is some sort of, you know, for me, kind of tragic about both Dougie, you know, and the Diane Tulpa, you know, oh, this, sure. this, this idea that, Absolutely. yeah, they're human, but only, I guess, up to a point, but then, yeah, they're, they're kind of trapped in between the two worlds. So, yeah, I would, uh, I, right. I, I hope a good Tulpa can be manufactured. And if it's going to come from anybody, it's going to come from uh, Cooper right. and, and his, his lock of hair yeah. and the seed. So, yeah, that's all I think I had to say about that. But yeah, I, I, uh, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this and found, uh, you know, uh, Tulpa consciousness more interesting than I suspected. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it's it's a fascinating question, Jeff, and I don't know that I have a position on the capacity of Tulpas for spiritual development. Uh, my, I, I'm just kind of skeptical and suspicious as of any kind of significant, you know, large project that obviously involves a lot of power of, of one kind or another. And, and that, that within that power is the potential for, for either the good or evil. And then you combine that with the con the concept that, you know, how could a Tulpa of even original recipe coop ever be ultimately fulfilling as, as a life partner or he's as gotta a be, he's gotta and, be better and, than and, original Dougie. Yeah. Yeah, no, right, definitely, exactly. definitely better than original exactly. Dougie, who's a schlub. But like, we don't know the 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 degree of difference, and 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 perhaps it's the case that you could just make a copy of Dale Cooper, and he's going to be a great guy, and it's going to be awesome. Uh, but somehow I have a feeling that's not how things work. But that's maybe totally a, gu a well, gut someone, reaction. Someone on my had part. compared it. 
Someone compared it, I thought, uh, pretty wisely to to uh, the way Rose was written out of Doctor Who. Uh, that you know, she she went into this parallel universe, but she also had the you know the the David Tennant clone there with her. So she didn't have the real Doctor, but she had a, a version of him which was better than nothing, and it was certainly the the best that was available under the circumstances. Yeah. And I think with lots of magical working or operations, intention is. Uh, and more important than anything else. So that might have something uh, to do with yeah. the two. Cooper's intention is totally altruistic and totally loving. So, yeah. Agreed. Right. Right. But at the same time, it's totally loving, but it's also selfish because he could make the sacrifice and go and be with Janie E himself. As a right, as a right, as a right now, save the world. But he has other. He's got. But he could come back. Yeah, he could come back after he's done. Although he might have an intuition, he's not going to make it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. We don't know. We don't know. Um. All right. Well, I'm going to move on to the Silver Mustang Casino, where the Mitchums are really happy to see Dougie, who looks great. Uh, I love. Uh. You know the 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 brothers talk about how Dougie's talking with a a lot of assurance. And and then Bradley's like side effects. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Electric uh, shock induced coma make you more confident. That's 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 good science that's right. there. That's right. And so basically, this the purpose of the scene is Coop's final goodbye to Janie E and Sunny Jim. Uh, Janie E, you can tell in this scene, really realizes that the woman that she's fallen in love with is not Dougie. It's this other man. And he says that he'll be back, but he kind of slips and says that someone's going to come back. And, you know, right. it's, it's, it's a good scene. I got some thoughts about uh, a very prominent shot of a slot machine with a huge scarab symbol that yeah. I'm sure was not unintentionally brought into the shot. Yeah. Um, Before you go there, JR. Yeah. I was just going to say, I found this one of the most moving scenes um, in the whole season so far and, and very unexpectedly. Yeah, I totally agree. So, I and, totally agree. And it, it really reminded me of everything Cooper missed, you know, in life, uh, you know, back on earth during the 25 years he was in the lodge, the time in his life when he probably would have experienced fatherhood and marriage and how important and meaningful uh, his time with Janie and, and Sonny Jim seems to have, have been to him. And this little family huddle here and, and Sonny Jim's reaction and Janie's reaction, uh, it's really got to me. Uh, and, and I also was, interested in the scene where you got the sense that Cooper had been there all along, you know, as Dougie, even if when it seemed like he wasn't. And I was thinking about this kind of, you know, way he must have experienced this, you know, and even thinking maybe he was almost going into hibernation instead of just being kind of totally checked out. But there's the sense of, you know, experiencing the world through a glass darkly and, you know, drinking of the river Lethe, you know, kind of nature of things um, that, uh, he might have ex- experienced, but yeah, it was um, uh, just you know before you get to the scarab, which is super interesting on the slot machine. It a, a great scene uh, played amazingly by all all three actors. Yeah, you know it's funny this tulpa talk and this scene in particular makes me think about what I think is a, a vastly underrated movie, uh, which is the Steven Spielberg slash Steven or uh, um, Stanley Kubrick movie AI, uh, which is all about the nature of love and whether it can transcend human versus artificial existence. Uh, and you, it's about the, a young boy Android who imprints upon his mother and develops this bond and love for his human mother slash owner that uh, is extremely powerful. 
but it takes place in a world and a society that simply can't handle sort of human android relations and how those are supposed to work. It, it's it's funny because uh, yeah, I c- kind of see this that very primal love instinct going on here between Sonny Jim and Cooper and, and Cooper sort of recognizing and feeling that bond, like you're talking about Jeff, that he never was able to develop because he was stuck in the black lodge for all those years, but he has now developed that bond uh, even through his sort of fugue state of living inside of Doug Dougie's body without being able to do anything. Uh, he's clearly bonded with the boy and is, and is, I think, keenly aware of that, of that bond. And, you know, maybe creating the, the tulpa will be the best possible thing for him. But, you know, there, there may be complications, as I, I mentioned. Uh, so yeah, in this scene, we've, as the camera pulls away from poor Janie E and Sonny Jim watching Cooper walk away. And it's interesting because as he comes up to meet the Mitchum brothers to leave the casino and get onto the jet or get into the, car that takes him to the jet he doesn't look back he doesn't even look back and wave and say goodbye to Janie e and sunny jim he's all business and we see up here in the right side of the screen the top right side of the screen this very large and prominent green beetle figure uh in the context of a slot machine that's got a lot of pseudo egyptian hieroglyph imagery in the background um, and Kyle, as you noted, that that symbol appears, but then it fades into the blue background, but it does appear permanently prominently, and clearly they want to see it. So I looked up a couple things about the scarab and its importance in, in Egyptian religion. You know, basically, uh, just as the sun god would roll, raw would go across the sky each day, transforming bodies and souls, uh, dung beetles or beetles would roll dung into a ball and use that as food in a place to where, where they would lay eggs where the larva would hatch and immediately be surrounded by food. So the scarab was seen as a symbol of this sort of heavenly cycle of rebirth and regener- regeneration. The Egyptian god Kepri, uh, which was Ra as the rising sun, was was often depicted with a scarab beetle or as a scarab beetled head. Um, I, I don't know if this is a bad thing, right? If the scarab represents the sun. Uh, the scarab is almost always green and i suspect this is this may be a heart scarab uh, which were popular in the new kingdom uh, until the third intermediate period in in egyptian history uh and and the the these particular kinds of scarabs uh would were associated with hieroglyphs which named the deceased and repeat some or all of a certain spell from the egyptian book of the dead which commands the deceased heart which would usually be left in a mummy's chest cavity, unlike other organs. Uh, it would com- the spell would command the heart not to give evidence against the deceased when the deceased is being judged by the gods of the other uh, of the underworld. And it's suggested that sometimes the heart is commanded not to give false evidence, but it could be the case that it's being commanded com- to uh, keep from telling the truth to the when the heart's being judged. So there's definitely some some ambiguity in terms of how the scarab is used for Book of the Dead spells but clearly they involve you know regeneration rebirth uh and trials and you know we'll see how that's going to play out but uh kyle you had a a different thought that associated the scarab well maybe not a different thought but a related thought that associated the the bug with the the episodes eight frog bug 
Yeah, and I'm very appreciative of, of your insight because that was one of the few kind of uh, disturbing images uh, for me that this episode that had so much positive uh, uh, feeling to it because you've got this green bug, but it's on a red background. Again, I was I was uh, comforted by the fact that it faded into the blue uh, background. But yeah, I, I thought it was a frog bug, particularly that was on my mind after Diane's jaw opened. Uh, so I'm, I appreciate you uh, putting a, a much more favorable spin on that. Uh, the thing that I noticed aside from that from this scene is uh, whenever Dale hugs Janie E and Sonny Jim, uh, you can clearly see both of his hands and he's not wearing any rings. He doesn't have a wedding ring on and he's not wearing the ring that he wore in the original series. Uh, and, and when he said that about, you know, walking through that red door and being home for good, uh, the way I read that was as foreshadowing of, you know, he's, he's still got, uh, those red curtains to go through and hopefully come back out of, uh, in order to, in order to finalize things with, uh, with Doppelcooper and, and hopefully we will see him walking through the red curtain and be home for good in a way that we really haven't up until now, you know, since the the season two finale. And you guys, maybe just when they were filming this, the scarab popped up on the slot machine. But as we all know with Lynch, (laughs) (laughs) but as we know with Lynch, you know, as with Frank Silva's appearance in the Frank Silva in the mirror, right? Like (laughs) these things are perhaps not a coincidence and Lynch is open to these little spontaneous magical uh, details. So yeah, the shot placement may be random, but the editing is not is all I'm going to say. Right. Yeah, and I'm not yeah. sure the shot placement is random. Like I, I was just looking at it the second time as you guys were talking about it, and it's a real determined pan to include that slot machine in the right. the, sh- the in, in the composition of the shot. It it doesn't have to be there at all. Um, so I, I had the same thought that you did at first, Jeff. Like, oh, maybe that was just an accident, or and that turned into a happy accident. But it, it looks real intentional. I also I want to throw another color into your mix there, Kyle. Color, color, color starting now and, and moving forward because you described the background as both red and blue on the on the slot machine screen that the scarab is on and a, as we leave the shot entirely and the scarab is gone there's a very bluish red color uh egyptian pyramid and then the sky above it is a very reddish blue which is to say there's two different shades of violet on on the screen uh-huh. so there's two shades of purple which is uh the color of uh promethazine and purple drank and dj screw uh which i'll be talking about in just a moment but uh so i think that you know you can you can derive some meaning out of the intersection of red and blue here um but uh it's going to be Absolutely. significant later in this episode and I think going forward. Yeah, I agree. Right, so we, we go from here into uh, the Mitchum brother, brothers limo where uh, Candy serves Bradley a Bloody Mary. Uh, Coop has explained everything. And uh, the Mitchum brothers are a little concerned because we are not traditionally welcome in uh, places like the FBI. Um, it, it, you know, They say, we love you, but we're not traditionally welcome in such places. Koopa said, assures them that it's not a problem because you both have hearts of gold. And Candy says they do. They really do. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great little scene. And, uh, Bradley sucks down that Bloody Mary yeah. at the end. All I was going to say is I love that candy, and I think she is a mystery that will not be solved. She's she's wonderful. She's a she's a triumph. There are all sorts of stupid theories about her on the internet, but I I love her just as she is. And I just I assume it's candy that says that in that she's the only one of the three that talks, right? Um, but uh, yeah, it's yeah. candy. 
Yeah, yeah it's candy. It's definitely candy. Also, Coop is drinking coffee. Coop's drinking coffee out of one of those mugs that they give you, or glasses that they give you in a Las Vegas casino. They don't ever hand out coffee mugs, but they have the clear glasses that look like they're ready for Irish coffee at any moment. And so it's a nice little detail that that's what they keep in the stretch limo that the Mitchums ride around in. He actually looks really skeptical of the coffee class. So I don't know if you noticed <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. He's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. what is this? And, and just about anybody, if like goes into a bar and orders a coffee, that's what they're going to get. And it does, like, you're like, ooh, I can see the coffee. It might be hot. I don't want to touch it. Uh, he, he's he's very skeptical of of it, but he you know doesn't complain and proceeds to to, to sip on it. Uh, so yeah, so from here to the roadhouse. Uh, the pinecone microphone, which you're just going to use all the time, whether somebody's actually playing a song or it's someone's uh, diluted uh, fantasy or hallucination, uh, the pinecone microphone introduction is given to Edward Lewis Stevenson, Severson, who's in fact Severson, Severson. I'm sorry, Severson, who which was in fact Eddie Vedder, who sings a song. I think it's called like "From Sand" or something. Out of sand. Um, out of sand. Out of sand. Out of sand. Right. And uh, uh, and then at the, at the same time, we've got Charlie arriving with Audrey. Neither of them have coats on. Charlie eventually gets some martinis. Audrey toasts to Billy after Charlie toasts to Aud- to us. And then at the end of the song, the pinecone microphone introduces Audrey's dance. You know, which is probably I think it's functionally impossible that the song would ever be on the jukebox at the double R, but it was. And we recall from season one when she gave her trippy little dance uh, uh, by the counter and the double R. And now this is the return of that dance. Uh, The entire floor of the roadhouse clears and she steps into the middle and uh, with her weird bangs haircut and does her a similar kind of dance uh, as she did in the double R uh, kind of swaying around and and the crowd starts swaying with her. But then somebody shouts, you know, Monique, that's my wife. And somebody charges another guy, throws a bottle at the head. And then Audrey sort of seems like she kind of wakes up, runs over to Charlie and beg to get her out of there. In the meantime, in some other place, uh, there's this electrical crackling and Audrey wakes up She's in a, a white room where everything is white. She looks into uh, into a a mirror with like really bright lights on it and says, "What?" And uh, that's the end of our episode. This is uh, this is sixteen. Everybody, uh, it was great. I know you guys are gonna have a lot to say about that last scene, so I'll let you run at it before we close out tonight. Yeah, and it's not the last scene. There's some credits to discuss too, but uh, I'll let people have their other thoughts before we get to our credits. I thought it was interesting that. Oh yeah, that there there were the uh, the purple lights, and we rarely see purple uh, in the world of Twin Peaks. The last time I remember seeing a lot of it was in, I guess we we're calling some people calling it the mauve zone uh, that uh, Cooper went through in episode three. And I sort of feel that purple has these otherworldly, metaphysical, spiritual connotations. But uh, Ken, you might be tapping in on that later uh, in your beverage corner, so I'll leave that uh, for yeah. you. Uh, but I also love that we got. The second use of, you know, a track off the original Battle of Menti Twin Peaks soundtrack, you know, Audrey's Dance. We also got the main theme, you know, used and both those were worth the wait. Um, yeah. Kyle, do you got anything to say about the this scene? Well, I, I do. And I, I but before I did that, I wanted to check and see how Ken wanted to do it. If he wanted to do Beverage Corner now and then I'll talk about the scene or if he'd rather me go first and then him. It's fine with me either way. I'll do it after because it really pairs with the credits. Yeah. 
Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Okay, uh, yeah, the, there's uh, a lot to this uh, scene, and particularly this transition uh, from when the, the, the isn't it too dreamy moment is broken by the, the Monique uh, guy. And, uh, you know, Audrey runs up to Charlie and asks him to get her out of there, but she's, she's speaking out of the television to the viewer, which is a, a really neat reversal of, of the voyeuristic tendencies that she showed in the original series when she hid in the wall and spied on her father's clandestine meetings. And it's, it's particularly interesting given that the hum, uh, is, is being emanated within those very same walls in the Great Northern. Uh, and, you know, we had that lingering shot of the mysterious closed door in the boiler room when James went to inspect it shortly before he and Freddie came to the roadhouse and then afterward wound up at the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Station, which uh, in this episode is seeming to be even more important than it had seemed before. Uh, but then we have this transition, and, and my immediate thought was to the Smallville episode Labyrinth when uh, Clark was... Was, uh, thought he was in a mental hospital and that, you know, all the things he had imagined about himself being Kryptonian and having superpowers were, were all these figments of his imagination. And of course, it turned out uh, not to be true. Uh, that was the figment of his imagination, not the, not the things he was being told, which I thought was interesting. But to, to me, of course, this is the original series began and ended with the image of someone looking in a mirror. So anyone looking in a mirror on Twin Peaks is immediately cause for concern. Um, and, and you know, you had, as Ken noted, you've got the purple preceding it. You've got the purple curtains and the backward music that followed it that Ken will be talking about. There's this omnipresent theme of doubling throughout Twin Peaks in every incarnation. There's a very clear bleed through of Audrey scenes uh, that may or may not be dreams uh, with events that we know are occurring in everyone else's reality. We know that Chuck and Tina and Billy are all real because they're intersecting with with characters that we know are out there. And then, as you noted, Jr., the electrical crackling and the humming that's audible in this what I call the white room sequence. And, and what I think is is going on here is I think Audrey is trapped in a lodge adjacent dimension that's connected to what I still think of as the space box, uh, the move zone. Um, you know, we've had the last two episodes confirming that Audrey is Richard's mother and Doppel Cooper is his father. And, and that, uh, to me, that makes the idea that Audrey is the mother banging on the space box door, um, something that's within the realm of possibility. Again, if she's confusing people from duplicate realities the way she appears to be, maybe she was trying to get in after Cooper uh, because she thought this was the Cooper who had sexually assaulted her. She didn't know that it, it was the good Cooper rather than the bad Cooper. And um, remember that I mentioned a second ago that Audrey ran up to the television screen and communicated with the viewer. That happened last week, too, when Cooper crawled up to the light socket and interacted with the audience one episode before he was restored to the character we knew he was but hadn't seen. And I'm, I'm wondering whether that's exactly what Audrey's doing in Part 16, um, particularly since the evidence is mounting that Annie Blackburn was, uh, was a tulpa herself, that she was manufactured in continuity uh, for a purpose. You know, we, we, uh, the secret history of Twin Peaks, as several people have noted, doesn't mention her at all. Norma told Walter directly in part 15 that she had no family. Well, by this point, her parents would be deceased, but she should still have a sister if if Annie is out there. And the last time we saw her, she was recovering in the hospital. Uh, and we even, as we see a tulpa 
being uh, walking toward Gordon's room in the form of Diane, we hear American Woman, which is a song, of course, uh, most recently made famous by a Lenny Kravitz video that starred Heather Graham, who played Annie Blackburn. And and we also know that in some sense, uh, the character of Annie was manufactured for a purpose because Laura Flynn Boyle was dating Kyle MacLachlan and didn't want Cooper to have a romance with Audrey, and so they brought in Annie Blackburn instead. So in a certain sense, not literally, of course, but in a certain sense, Annie was an Audrey Tulpa to begin with. And of course, Annie is who Cooper went into the Black Lodge to try and rescue. And I think there's a certain amount of winking fan service here that if if Dale, now that he is back to being Dale, uh, ends what he, what he began all those years ago and actually goes in to rescue Audrey, Audrey, uh, and, and again, she's dressed all in black in the roadhouse. She's wearing a black dress. She's wearing her black heels. She left her red jacket at home, uh, and she's occupying this hellscape. She's in front of the mirror. She's surrounded by all this whiteness. We're getting these Black Lodge and White Lodge resonances, and so I, I don't think this Audrey is a tulpa the way some people do. I think this is the real Audrey. I think the roadhouse Audrey and the white room Audrey are one and the same, uh, and I think she's sliding between reality. She's trapped on the threshold, just as Charlie said she was. Uh, and I think she has one chance out between two worlds. And I think that Cooper is going to spend the next two hours uh, rescuing, in turn, or perhaps together, Audrey, Diane, and Laura. Wow. Yeah. I mean, think about all that Audrey has missed in 25 years, right? We were talking about what Coop has missed from being in the lodge for 25 years. But, you know, what she's missed in presumably what was done to her in in that time you know so yeah I, I i neglected to mention that at the conclusion of our uh disturbing scene with audrey <laughs> uh the band uh plays while the credits play audrey's dance except uh, as ken put it in the outline the music is chopped and screwed which uh i think leads into tonight's ken's beverage corner Woo woo! Yeah, thanks, Jr. And uh, you know, I, I wrote that they had chopped and screwed the version of the song they were playing over the credits, and you had said something about not knowing what chopped and screwed was. So I said about starting to uh, look into it and explain it uh, when I realized there's actually a lot of connections between chopped and screwed music and Twin Peaks. So uh, and there's certainly a connection between chopped and screwed music and beverages. It's not a particularly savory one, but uh, the whole genre comes out of the work of DJ Screw, who was known for a couple of things. Uh, in his home of Houston. Of course, Houston is very much on all of our minds right now, as it is very much in peril, and much of it is underwater. So, of course, we're all thinking of uh, uh, friends and and folks there and hoping that they are safe. Um, But uh, Houston became very prominent in the rap scene uh, in a mainstream sort of way around 2004, after Still Tippin' came out. Mike Jones, Paul Wall, Slim Thug, Still Tippin' on Fofos. Big, big song. And Houston rappers were all over the radio for a handful of years uh, after that. And I think that's how a lot of people know sort of Houston rap and the and uh, the genre that came out of Houston. Uh, but anyway, DJ Screw is known for pioneering a style of music that came out of Houston called Chopped and Screwed Music. And he is known for being a great proponent of purple drank or lean or syrup or scissorp or perp. It's got a lot of names, uh, but it is traditionally promethazine 
morphine and codeine. There is a type of cough syrup you could get, uh, typically by prescription, made uh, by a couple of companies. I think Atavis and uh, High Tech. Uh, both companies were names namesakes for rappers at one point or another. But uh, so you could get this promethazine with codeine if you had a particularly bad cough. And uh, if turns out if you mix it with Sprite and uh, a Jolly Rancher, it's a pleasing enough tasting beverage. And it also does things to you psychoactively. It makes you sort of experience the world in a slowed down, trippy sort of a way. And so it became a very popular drug of abuse for DJ Screw and for an awful lot of people who were listening to his music, which was mixtapes of usually other people's songs, sometimes songs that he mixed or remixed himself, but um, songs from around the Houston rap scene that he had slowed down, that is to say, screwed, and chopped up, that is to say, chopped. And so, you know, you take a song, you slow it way, way down, you focus on certain parts, you repeat parts that you might like, hooks or breaks or things like you might do in a regular mixtape, but you do it at a very slow tempo, and it's all very sort of psychedelic and trippy, and it goes extremely well with both this drug of choice and with sort Sort of riding around in a slab in a giant tricked out like Cadillac in 90 degree heat in Houston. Right. Um, so an entire genre came out of this. And I had thought, you know, it's an interesting genre. And it's a, a drink that uh, people should definitely, definitely avoid the list of perp casualties in hip hop history is long. There's been a number of articles about it. You can just uh, you can Google pretty quickly. An awful lot of very mainstream rappers have been um, very, very harmed by lean abuse. Uh, people think that Rick Ross's history of strokes, for example, Little Wayne has had a lot of strokes. He's been within an inch of his life a couple of times. And people think that's generally from abusing lean. DJ Screw himself died from an overdose of codeine and promethazine. Uh, people think that's how Pimp C from UGK died. Uh, I'm myself drinking a cocktail tonight that I invented 10 years ago when Pimp C died uh, in his honor that is not made from codeine and promethazine, but is made from cognac and creme de violette and lemon juice and sugar. It's, it's like purple Kool-Aid. Pur- purple drink, but, you know, legal. Um, but, uh, but anyway, to connect all of this uh, to Twin Peaks, David Lynch, I think, is definitely aware of chopped and screwed music. There is a shocking amount of chopped and screwed sort of influence on this season. And it took this version of the Audrey dance over the credits to make me think about it. But for example, that American Woman remix is definitely, definitely chopped and screwed. Like, it is slowed way, way down, and you can hear the chops in it when Diane is approaching the hallway for her big monologue and for her scene with um, Gordon and, and everyone else at 34 minutes and 40 seconds, if you pull up the episode on your Showtime app or whatever. You can hear the part where uh, they've they've chopped up the next lyric. It's like, do I look like a... And then it's as though they're they're scratching a record right um i'm sure it's done digitally and not with scratches but it's it's the same principle right and uh in looking all this up first of all if you if you google david lynch and chopped and screwed you will get a whole bunch of really really interesting stuff (laughs) like it's amazing how much stuff there is out there like people that have sampled david lynch i had forgotten that dj shadow sampled uh twin peaks sampled the giant uh the fireman in the last track on introducing which is like super super dope there's a a good place to splice this in jared because that's one of the greatest samples of all time yeah 
Yeah, I support that strongly. Um, there's a whole Laura monologue. There's a whole piece from Fire Walk With Me where Laura talks about if you would slow down or go faster and faster if you were falling in space. Um, that whole thing from Fire Walk With Me is the backbone of a song by our friend LP from last week. So you get lots of interesting things if you look this up. But you, but you also get, there's a, uh, a website called The Film Bar, PHX, which I guess Phoenix, The Film Bar Phoenix. And they had a really nice piece that tied together a bunch of stuff we've been talking about at least since episode eight this season. Um, he connects Lynch and Tarkovsky and Weekend Era Godard and Jacques Tati, who still, to my mind, is the inspiration for most of the Dougie Jones stuff. Um, and it talks about slowness and empty space and droning uh, in in these. So that there's, you know, sort of a genre of music known as drone uh, that is a cousin of uh, Chopped and Screwed in the more sort of experimental world. And uh, this piece puts all of that together and talks about the use of really, really long travel sequences and really, really tedious space, much like, you know, the Audrey and Charlie stuff. So it's perfect, of course, that they lead into the chopped and screwed thing. It even includes a long, uh, decent defense of the long Wally Brando scene and how that sort of layers on comedy by using uh, tedium and, and empty space and the and the evolving expressions on uh, Robert Forster on, on Sheriff Truman's face, um, which all that is great. And I'll put the link in the uh, in the show notes, there's a great quote in it that reminded me of the notion of what it's like to take uh, purple drank, to take lean and codeine promethazine, uh, that what Lynch and the others are trying to do with this technique is to create, quote, the sudden weird lurch in your stomach when you realize that after a long journey through nothing, you're now somewhere else, and how that awareness can be profoundly disorienting. The actors on screen don't need to work at showing how arduous and tiring it was to get to space, like in Solaris, or to sneak inside the zone, like in Stalker. We can feel their weariness in our bones, which I think is is a good summation of what Lynch is trying to do with some of these scenes uh, in this season. Uh, and to go all the way back to what which I was saying earlier about ways to sort of enjoy Twin Peaks in full, right? Ways, ways to just love the dog, I suppose. Um, I think that there, there are lots of ways to watch David Lynch sort of spreading out into his art and taking advantage of techniques that are not tech, not typically seen on TV or what we know as prestige TV. And I, I have to think that the way that he's using the techniques of chopped and screwed music in uh, his remixes and his sound design and at the end of this uh, episode are emblematic of that. Um, and uh, this has been uh, a very slow, uh, draped up and dripped out edition of Ken's Beverage Corner. Wow. Great, great. Ken, the best nice. Ken's Beverage Corner ever. I, I was going to say, there <laughs> a lot of them, have, they've all been really good, but that was my favorite Ken's Beverage Corner ever. And <laughs> yeah. let me also say that there are a lot of other Twin Peaks podcasts I hear out there, but only wrapped in podcasts has connected episode 16 to DJ Screw and Purple Drink. Well, so far, who knows? Maybe everyone's doing it this maybe week. Maybe so, maybe so. <laughs> so cliche. That was great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Uh, okay, everybody, thank you so much for episode 16 of Wrapped in Podcast. We're going to put our predictions for the finale uh, on the Facebook page. Watch it. Listen to this podcast. We're really excited uh, to finish this up. Thanks for staying with us, and we will be talking to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.
why 